0: This is a variety show with no particular niche. Baby, it's always about hanging out. Maybe we'll laugh at some stuff. Maybe we'll learn something new. But it's always about hanging out, me and you. Hi. Welcome to That Thing with James. I'm your host, James. And I have been thinking about suicide. Not doing it. No ideation, no attempts, nothing like that. I've just been thinking about... The the verb, and the noun, the action, the concept of suicide, and Katamari, and absurdity, and this Algerian philosopher, Albert Camus, or as nerds call him, Albert Camus, get over yourself, and... I am going to try to shoot for a 30 or 45 minute episode covering all this stuff. I've got some resources lined up to talk about this. I find it interesting, at least. And um, so I'm going to shoot for that. But fair warning, this may spill over into a two-parter episode, depending on how far uh, (laughs) I get carried away with these topics. And if that's the case... I encourage you to become a member of my Patreon at patreon.com slash that thing with James. It's only five dollars. Five, five, five. Only five bucks. And it's way, way, way better than any bullshit you're going to get at Subway. Um, and so if this does spill over into like a two-parter thing, the second part will be on Patreon. Patreon. I record one new bonus episode every week, including this week, and you can get access to all the new ones and all the previous ones at patreon.com slash James. You can help make this show easier to make and help me buy time and equipment to explore new avenues and make this show better for all of us. Uh, also... Since I'm on the business side, before we jump in, I would quite like it if you would, if if you felt so inclined, help harvest me content. Uh, this is a one man show, and I'm always on the search for something to talk about on this show, be it a meme or an article, or if you have questions you would like me to answer on the show, if you are in need of advice or just want me to riff on any random topic. hell yeah, I can I can I can weave golden fleece out of thin air but it, it's a lot easier with your help. So questions, ideas if you want me on your show. If you want to be if you want me to be on your show, if you just want to give me some much needed validation, email me at that at gmail.com. Another place you can give me stuff to laugh at or ta- and or talk about is at my subreddit r slash that thing with James. Shitposts are quite welcome. You can also find me on social media, mainly Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. My handle on all three is at James J. Asher. And once more, really consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com/slash that thing with James. Your support helps. So, on with the topic. Last week, I, when doing this episode, I got on the topic of katamari sort of i was kind of finding some similarities between japanese culture and catholic culture and that led me into the idea behind the video game series katamari um there's like katamari damacy Katamari Forever. That's the one I have. It's for the PlayStation 3. And I I wasn't sure, but that led me to the topic of Katamari. There's Katamari Damacy, there's Katamari Forever. I'm not sure if there's other Katamaris, but I did recently learn that there was a remake of Katamari Damacy called uh, Katamari Damacy Reroll which is available on a video game console that I have. And I I want to get it because I love Katamari. And um, well, it was Monday, Monday of last week. I was doing my day job. It was the morning and I was very jazzed up on my second big mug of coffee And my brain just started making some connections. See, I had been, and I often think about just big questions, existential questions. Where should I start? When I was 17, this isn't going to be a long story, but when I was 17, I'm not going to say what led me into the office. But when I was 17, I saw my first therapist, talk therapist. Um, but she also prescribed me medication for my um, newly discovered, but it, it made a lot of sense, general anxiety disorder. And uh, I guess with affective depression, I don't, I don't know. I can get depressed sometimes, but the main thing is anxiety. And a lot of these things Uh, She asked me why I felt anxious, and I had lots of reasons that I won't get into right now, but I would much later, somewhat more recently to now, like within the past five or so years, discovered that a lot of the stuff I was talking about was stuff that someone named Karl Marx talked about, and uh, so that made a lot of sense, but I also had other questions as well. Um, I didn't even mention the word anxiety at all. I, I thought my self-diagnosis was that I have depression because I feel depressed. And she asked me, why do you feel depressed? And I told her my reasons why. And she said, I don't think you are as depressed or depressed in the way that you think you are. I think you are an existentialist. And I said, what is an existentialist? I was 17. I was living in a rural town in Oklahoma. There's no fucking way I ever heard of existentialists or existentialism before. So I said, what's, what's existentialism? And she said, Um, it's a philosophy. And there are a lot of people who have talked about some similar things that you just spoke about. And I think you might find some comfort in reading about them and reading about their thoughts. And so that sent me on my path. I've always had a big imagination, thought about big stuff. I'm not saying that in a bragging way. I'm not trying to say, ooh, oh, I'm smart. I'm just telling you what happens. I, I think everyone has big fucking questions. It's just a matter of, do you ignore them or not? Um, so therapist office, 17, my favorite therapist, and she said, you're an existentialist and sent me on my way. And I went on to read about it, and it made a lot of sense, and I learned about some neighboring philosophies to existentialism. Well, what does this have to do with Katamari? Well, there is a philosopher whose name I mentioned at the very tippy-top of this episode, Albert Camus, who I actually made, I believe it was my first TikTok about last summer, I got bored and said, what's this TikTok shit about? Is it really just a bunch of kids dancing? It turns out it's actually pretty cool. And there's a whole lot more. There's anything you can think of is pretty much on there. Uh, Everyone's doing their thing. And and it's great. I mean, it sucks that it's a, you know, private property and has corporate interest behind it. That is inherently a, a problem for anything. But for options we have available, TikTok is pretty cool. It offers some pretty innovative content and gives people an outlet. Um, And that's a good thing in my eyes. Well, my first, I think it was my first TikTok was about Albert Camus. And I put a little picture up of him over my head and editing. Well, that sounded oaky. Put a picture up of him. I put a picture of him above my head and I said, I love history and philosophy and all sorts of things. And one of my favorite historical figures is this guy. Boom, the picture of Albert Camus pops over my head. And I said, this is Albert Camus, a philosopher famous for not killing himself. And that was it. And that's a joke. And people in the comments understood the joke, but they didn't understand the whole joke because I had so many people saying it's Camus, Albert Camus, to which I would reply, Gesundheit. <laughs> like, I know it's Albert Camus. I was making a joke, Albert Camus. But Albert Camus was a neighbor to existentialism. And he was his philosophy was that of Absurdity or absurdism, and one of the uh, metaphors he thought of to articulate absurdism was through this thing called the myth of Sisyphus. If you if you need a refresher, Sisyphus it's this. It was a Greek myth, I believe it was a Greek myth. It sounds Greek, Sisyphus. Um, Sisyphus was condemned by a god or the gods, I forget who, to push a boulder up a hill only for said boulder to roll back down again and for him, Sisyphus, to go back down at the bottom of the hill and push the boulder back up to the top of the hill only to see the boulder roll down again. And he, Sisyphus, must then have to go back down. So on, so forth, ad infinitum. He was tasked, this task, for all of eternity. And it is sort of, I mean, all Greek, I mean, all religion, all myth, really, is metaphor. Um, at least with many different types of lenses. Myth is metaphor. Religion, myth is metaphor. And the myth of Sisyphus was a metaphor for something, say, like of the drudgery of life. But it was it's often, at the surface, it can seem a cruel punishment, hard labor, labor that is completed and then, destroyed, impermanent at the end of its completion, and then you have to go back down again. It's often viewed uh, in the surface level as a a suffering, uh, an eternity of suffering under fruitless labor. And this kind of plays into a thing I was getting at in last week's free episode, that of feeling... um, fear and anxiety and doubt about pursuing some thing, some thing that gives you meaning Um, and also grappling with the problems we have to deal with in our daily lives, such as capitalism driving a person to never ever feel that they are enough or that they have done enough that is an inherent element of capitalist culture there is no such thing as enough you never feel like you've produced enough and you are always driven to feel like you should do more and That's not necessarily a healthy thing in my eyes, but who am I to criticize? So, oh, quick, quick water break. I'm getting thirsty. This week I'm drinking Waterloo Watermelon-flavored sparkling water, and it is delicious. Waterloo Water is not a sponsor of this show, but hey, if you or someone you know are or knows Waterloo... Water, um, get them to pay me to sponsor their shit. I really like this water. So just a second, let me whet my whistle. So back to Albert Camus. He wrote this thing called um, The Myth of Sisyphus, and it culminates with the line something like, imagine Sisyphus happy. And that was a metaphorical distillation of his idea, his definition of absurdism as a philosophy. And I started my brain on Monday morning, jazzed up on coffee, started putting together, wait a second, in Katamari, you're rolling up a ball. And you're rolling and rolling and rolling forever because uh, you're, you're... trying to like clean up a mess that your dad who's the king of all the cosmos made and the dad is never ever ever satisfied with you nothing you do is ever good enough and it never ever will be and yet you keep rolling and my brain was like oh my god katamari is sisyphus i wonder someone else must have thought of this right so i plugged the relevant keywords into a online search engine to see what results would yield and one i found a person on twitter whose handle is i think it is uh katamari camu something like that i followed them immediately and told them what i had done to find their account and said thank you for existing um and another thing I found was this article, which I will share with you right now. And it also, it it answered a few questions I had had in last week's episode about what the fuck do some of these words mean? Are they even real? Uh, what's the backstory? Who's related to who? So, this article is from GameGrin.com. Uh, it was published in on the 31st of october in 2020 written by danielle winter what a lovely name danielle winter the title is the katamari series is a cosmic horror story and it says fear a concept we are all too wary of each one of us possesses individual unique aversions of fear that permeates, festers and mutates and dwells within the dark recesses of, our, recesses of our consciousness, excuse me, and subconscious minds. Nothing strikes more fear than what is unknown and unknowable, and to flirt with the void could be enough to drive one insane one may look at the charming, sugar-coated, and optimistic exterior of which the Katamari series represents itself as, but ye shall not be duped, nor be so foolhardy. These games are an anthology of the cosmic indifference and omniscience omniscient... and wow, this is a mouthful. Let's take that back. These games are an anthology of the cosmic indifference and omniscient ambivalence that far exceeds our comprehension of our purposelessness. That we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but an atom of a speck on a grain of sand in comparison to our conceivable notion of the observable universe. We merely abide to the whim of forces beyond our imagination. Sounds very Taoist, actually, and I will get to that after this article. So... The king of all cosmos gets absolutely space-crunk hammered on Celestial Lean, and being the binge-drinking magaluff mad lad that he is, ends up destroying all the entire universe sans the Earth, and presumably the sun too. Naturally, it's up to you, the son of the king of all cosmos... The Prince to fix your father's boozy galaxy blasting bender. Before we even set foot on Earth's terrestrial plane to Marie Kondo away all this mess, let us take some time just to appreciate that in this universe, aliens exist, that they are an an omnipotent race of super beings capable of leveling entire star systems, and that these baguette-brained extraterrestrial life forms use Earth as their personal little living hub. As the prince you were flung onto Earth from the heavens, tasked to litter-pick the world with a trash heap of snowball magnet, all in order to construct a dense enough cluster ball and fashion it into a solitary star in the blank canvas that has become the night sky. Thank you, Dad. This alien technological marvel is what is commonly referred to as a katamari, which roughly translates to clump or clod. But the full title of Katamari Damacy hides a disturbing truth to those who don't understand the Japanese language. Damacy or Damashi is that was probably a terrible accent is an alternative spelling of the word tamashi which means soul or spirit meaning that the phrase katamari damashi approximately translates to clump spirit does this mean we are all rolling up spirits now this can go one of two ways In Japanese folklore, yokai can be described as a supernatural presence, namely monsters and spirits, that can possess objects, creatures, and even environments. There is an underlying ideology in Shinto and general Japanese spiritualism that adopts animalism, the concept that all objects inherently, uh, that yeah, all objects inherently reside a spirit of sorts, and depending on whether or not the spirit is a peaceful or a vengeful one can bestow fortune or ill will from being within its presence. Sidebar, real quick, this is something I've thought of for a long time. I thought, oh, why, are, why wouldn't everything be conscious? Why wouldn't a chair be conscious? It's made, we're all made of the same shit. So we have no idea what uh, other animals are thinking. We have no idea what trees are thinking, not in the way that we know what we ourselves are thinking, although I'm sure we're all thinking in similar ways, whether, whether we believe it or not, in ways that go beyond our human language, human linguistics. Anyway, back to the article. It's a way of thought that can give an appreciation to everything that we own. Fast forward to the consumerist culture we find ourselves in today, of how much we own, barely use, collect, and throw away. It's little wonder how we don't nearly cherish the useful things we have in our lives enough for people, places, things and titles that shouldn't be so readily replaceable that we instead derive our purpose to have more as a as to fill a void within ourselves which is also relates to Camus which I will get to and in and like in real life in Katamari Damacy we don't just collect debris or general objects. Oh my God, there's this picture of the king and it is absurd. <laughs> I might put it on the video. If you're listening, this show's on YouTube as well. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe. All of you, subscribe. Get others to subscribe. Back to the article. And like in real life in Katamari Damashi, we don't just collect debris or general objects. In fact, you accrue plants, trees, fauna, personal possessions, homes and buildings, islands, even human beings. Are we as humans just living katamari balls, attaching value to the things we amass from mere contact and exposure? Is there a ball we roll and is the ball we roll an extension of our ego ever increasing and hyper inflating to the point of dwarfing the real you the prince who must strain to push this boulder until our time is up and we are finally judged or perhaps Does the spirit referred to in Katamari Damasi mean that we are harvesting the souls of life on earth? Are you the harbinger of a mass culling, a rapture, under the guise of redecorating the heavens? is this the price we humans must pay as to fix the prince's daddy issue? Because boy, there are plenty of daddy issues here. Your father is a narcissistic, immature, impetuous, ego-driven megalomaniac who doesn't take any responsibility for his actions, but will instead seem it just to berate and control his only son, all the while getting in your way and desperately trying to be relatable and down to earth. Think the devil wears lycra and a ruff. I don't know what that reference is. Devil wears Prada, whatever. With about as much self-awareness as David Brent slash Michael Scott from The Office, but a little reminder, he's also essentially a deity, a deity much like those from ancient Greek mythology, the type of gods who would just mess around with humans for bants, but who'll occasionally mess things up on earth so bad they'll need to fling a few children down there to correct their mishaps. And just like those ancient Greek myths, the burden lies with our dashing little 5-centimeter prince condemned to roll his this colossal ball, not too dissimilar to the fate of Sisyphus, forever rolling a boulder up a mountain. Yet, Another bone-chilling horror that plagues the psyche can be found within the aforementioned tale, but can can also be seen as somewhat inspiring in its absurdity in the fable about a man condemned to perform an arduous and redundant feat for eternity. Philosopher Albert Camus suggests in his essay The Myth of Sisyphus that Sisyphus may be content with his new life as it has purpose, function, and a goal. The absurdity of, impossible, of the impossible task doesn't sway him, but instead breathes new respect into life and to living its fullest. Perhaps in restoring the night sky and atoning the sins of humans for polluting their world with junk was to condemn his son, the prince, to be a sacrificial lamb, after all, to cleanse the world of material pleasures and to create anew in the heavens. As the sequel, We Love Katamari, we witness life after the first game, with the galaxy restored, and all recognition and appreciation by Earthlings is given solely to the King of All Cosmos, despite the fact that he caused the initial problem and did little to resolve the issue. The Prince was just a lackey, a grunt, another cog in the machine— All of your previous efforts served to fuel the hubris of your father. The real work was done by you. You were on the ground level, sleeves rolled up like the objects in your katamari, while the face, the front man, the man, takes all the credit. Meanwhile... The people want a sequel regardless of the consequence or rationale, and so you are sent back to push that rock up that hill with an encore. That in itself is a horror all too real. We also get a glimpse of a patterned paternal abuse through cutscenes from the second game. We learn that what we experience as the prince was conditioned through his grandfather into the king. That the king only knows how to parent as his father taught him, and is instilling this generational rite of passage for his son into royalhood. That even gods imprint the faults of themselves into their creations, so too does the king perpetuate the cycle of emotional abuse to his kin. As the prince in game and in our lives, do we break that cycle or spin the spokes further? While I was replaying the series in one level, a girl and her mother were walking hand in hand along their pre-planned route. It also happened that the little girl was picked up by my rolling rock of rubble, but the mother did not panic. She just accepted it and continued on her path. I think she knew that her child would serve a purpose beyond her daughter's life, and that she may one day join her, uh, like reverse mitosis, if or when the time comes. The mother found peace in chaos." I'd like to think she knew her place in the universe, that even if we are small and insignificant to an indifferent universe, that we continue to find meaning in the meaninglessness of it all." That we each have our own menial obstacles we must overcome and control like a katamari. To build anything great, positive or negative, you must start small and build momentum and stature in order to gravitate and consume larger and bigger things that you must become as big as the thing you wish to pursue in order to obtain it, that no matter how small you may start off being, with diligence and care, you can amount to monumental, singular achievements, all to reach your potential and to be refined as another light in your own night sky. Or perhaps I'm just exhibiting apophenia uh, to the perception of vague, barely tangible connections by attributing deep, profound meaning to a video game about rolling stuff up. Perhaps the scariest thing here is the quasi-woke essay on the Katamari series, yet again written by Danielle Winter, staff writer For GameGrin.com, Danielle Winter, I applaud you. This is a fantastic article, and it sent me on my path. Apparently, I was, as I suspected, not the only person to make a connection between Katamari, Camus, and Sisyphus. So, excuse me. Uh, So, who is... Albert Camus. If this is all new stuff to you, um, maybe hearing it from me might click. And if this is new to you, hopefully some stuff I talk about might click. Uh, Camus, as I mentioned, was an absurdist. And as I mentioned, absurdism is a neighbor or relative to existentialism. And I, I believe uh, don't <laughs> off the record. I'm pretty sure that existentialism is related to nihilism, Nietzsche. So first came nihilism. Well, sort of. There's some stuff there, Kierkegaard and all this other stuff. There's nothing new under the sun, but for newer-ish philosophies, Nietzsche uh, had nihilism. And nihilism is essentially, is all this stuff is as I understand it. If you know better, comment, send me an email. I, I'd love to learn more. Um, but as I understand it, nihilism is the philosophy that everything is meaningless. Nothing has any meaning. And then it kind of stops there. I know there's so much more to all this stuff, but I'm just giving the Absolute basics, like if you had a five seconds to tell it. So nihilism, everything is meaningless. Existentialism, uh, often attributed to Jean Paul Sartre, although there was all sorts of um, lots of female existentialist philosophers. They're fantastic. I cannot think of their names. The only one I ever remember is Sartre, because I read some of his plays, and uh, like I, I did some, uh, I did one of his plays. But anyway. Um, No exit. It's one of my favorites. Um, Nihilism is everything is meaningless. Existentialism is things are meaningless, but we can create meaning, and then that means something. And absurdism is everything is meaningless, and we make our own meaning. But that doesn't change the fact that the meaning we create is meaningful. It's still meaningless, I just don't give a fuck. That's absurdism in a ball. And I, th- before I started recording this, I, I remembered this painting. It's an old painting called The Vinegar Tasters. And uh, I'm just consulting Wiki right now for a refresher. Uh, the Vinegar Tasters is a traditional subject in Chinese painting and later spread to other. East Asian countries. The allegorical composition depicts the three founders of China's major religions and philosophical traditions, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. You may see it spelled as Tao. It's often spelled T-A-O, but it's pronounced like a D instead of a T, Taoism. The theme in the painting has been interpreted as the three Men, uh, as the three men tastes vinegar to reveal their perception on life. The three men are dipping their fingers in a vat of vinegar and tasting it. One man reacts with a sour expression, one reacts with a bitter expression, and one reacts with a sweet expression. The three men are Confucius, Buddha, and Lao Tzu, respectively. Each man's expression represents the predominant attitude of his philosophy. Confucianism saw life as sour, attaching possessions and material desires. Wait, wait, I skipped ahead, my bad. Confucianism saw, Confucianism saw life as sour in need of rules to correct the degeneration of people, Buddhism saw life as bitter, dominated by pain and suffering due to attaching possessions and material desires, and Taoism saw life as sweet due to being fundamentally perfect perfect in its natural state. Another interpretation of the painting is that the three men are gathered around the one vat of vinegar that the three teachings are actually one that i haven't heard and that's interesting so real quick some in, uh, expansion on the interpretations confucianism saw life as sour in need of rules to correct the degeneration of people and the uh, present was out of step of the past and that the government and the people had no understanding of the way of having heaven. The right response was to worship the ancestors. Confucianism, being concerned with the outside world, viewed the vinegar as polluted wine. Buddhism was founded by Siddhartha Gautama, 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 I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's a great book, Siddhartha, uh, by uh, I think Herman Hesse, who claimed to be, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, uh, who claimed to be enlightened when he was 35 years old. Ooh, I'll be 35 in uh, about a year. Hopefully I get enlightened. Siddhartha lived a very sheltered and extravagant life growing up. As he neared his 30s, it is said that he became aware of all the ugliness in the world. This prompted him to leave his home in search of enlightenment and the start of his travels at the start of his travels Siddhartha became a beggar and studied philosopher. However, his studies did not lead him to the answers that he sought. Um, he then tried asceticism alongside five monks for six years. This practice also failed to bring him enlightenment. After giving up ascetism, Siddhartha decided to meditate until he found the enlightenment that he was searching for. He sat under the tree, the Bodhi tree, the Bodhi tree, all sorts of different pronunciations for these words. Uh, After much meditation, he became enlightened and was henceforth known as Buddha, which means awakened one. During this meditation, he had a vision of humankind and the cycle that we are bound to. He concluded that we are bound to the cycles of life and death because of tanha, desire, thirst, craving, karma. During Buddha's first sermon, he preached, quote, Neither the extreme of indulgence nor the extremes of ascetism was was acceptable as a way of life, and that one should avoid such extremes and seek to live in the middle way, end quote. Or thus, the goal of basic Buddhist practice is not to achieve a state of bliss in some heaven, but the extinguishing of Tana. When Tana is extinguished, one is released from the cycle of life, birth, suffering, death and rebirth only then will they achieve nirvana great band one of my favorites One interpretation is that Buddhism, being concerned with the self, viewed the vinegar as a polluter of the taster's body due to its extreme flavor. Another interpretation for the image is that Buddhism reports the facts as they are, that vinegar is vinegar and isn't naturally sweet on the tongue. Trying to make it sweet is ignoring what it is. Pretending that it is sweet is denying what it is. While the equally harmful opposite is being disturbed by the sourness. But on to Taoism. Taoists, Taoism sees life as sweet due to fundamental, uh, perfe- due to fundamentally perfect. What the fuck? How is Taoism? This is good. some of these sentences throw me off. Taoism sees life as sweet due to fundamentally perfect in its natural state. I'm pretty sure that's a typo. So let's just keep going on. Uh, from, this is from Benjamin Hoff, the writer of a fantastic book. I highly recommend it The Tao of Pooh. Quote, from the Taoist point of view, sourness and bitterness come from the interfering and unappreciative mind. Life itself, when understood and utilized for what it is, is sweet. That is the message of the vinegar tasters, end quote. In the vinegar tasters' picture, Lao Tzu, uh, his expression is sweet, because of how the teachings of Taoism view existence. Every natural thing is intrinsically good, as long as it remains true to its nature. This perspective allows Lao Tzu to experience the taste of vinegar without judging it. Ah, this, he might be thinking, this is vinegar. From such a perspective, the taste doesn't need to be sweet sour, bitter, or bland, it is simply the taste of vinegar. By openly experiencing vinegar as vinegar, Lao Tzu acknowledges and participates in the harmony of nature, and this is the very goal of Taoism. Whatever the taste of vinegar, the experience is good. At the core of Taoist doctrine is the concept of the Tao or the Way. According to Taoist philosophy, everything originates from Tao. Tao is all-embracing, existing anywhere and everywhere, though it is invisible. It gives birth to all, which then gives birth to everything in it. The Tao, in this sense, is the way of everything, the divine power behind all. And that's it for this episode. I will be moving on to Camus and the myth of Sisyphus, etc. In the bonus episode, if you want to check that out, you can get access to it at patreon.com slash thatthingwithjames. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you stick around because this is is cool stuff. I will catch you next week. Love you. Bye.